Check, check this out. This is this is just crazy. Just check it out. It's crazy. Let me ask this, because now we're in this patent world, and there seems to be this series of patents that are filed. So the first thing is that it seems sort of like you unbelievable is that you can patent viruses. Yeah, so that does seem unbelievable. But you can't patent something that occurs naturally, right? I mean, like, like you can't patent gold or you can't patent, you know, it's like, you know, these things are patentable. So how do you patent a virus? Well, you pay off the patent office. And it's pretty easy to do that. You, you actually literally pay them fees to the point where you pay them enough, they give you the patent. Give me an example. Well, the CDC's patent on SARS coronavirus in 2003. The CDC has a patent. Oh, yeah. They got it in 2003. They... In 2003? Yeah. On a SARS coronavirus. Yeah. The same thing we're dealing with today. Well, according to them, no. It's this very uber different thing that allegedly all happened in 2019. There's a tiny problem with that story. It's not true. That That's the part of the story that's a little bit of a problem. Mm. In 2003, April of 2003, the CDC filed a patent on SARS coronavirus. Um, and, and I have been criticized all over the world by legal experts who take issue with what I'm about to say. And the problem is legal experts, A, don't read, which is the first problem, and B, don't understand genomics, which is the second problem. So besides those two problems, they're probably right, but here's where those problems create a problem. The patent application that the CDC filed in April of 2003 was rejected as unpatentable by the Patent Office, not once, but twice. Under what grounds? Under what was called Section 102, 35 U.S. Code Section 102, which is a re rejection based on the fact that the information was already in the public domain. Did you hear what I just said? It was already in the public domain, meaning that people already had the information that the CDC was trying to patent, and it was public. Now, here's where we have to take a little diversion to the press official press statements by the CDC. We're filing a patent on SARS coronavirus so the world can do research on it. That's their statement. They made the public statement, but that's their justification for getting their patent. Here's a tiny problem with that story. About the same time they were making that statement, they were paying the patent office to keep their application secret. They didn't want the world to know. What they were publicly saying, they wanted the world to know. That's a little tiny problem. Like literally, they were writing a check to the patent office to keep it secret when they were telling the world, we're trying to make it publicly available. I don't know if you have a problem with that. I have a problem with that. You don't need a patent to make something publicly well, available. Well, hey, yeah. it was already published, which was the evidence that the patent office used to reject it, and they rejected it twice, and then they paid a fee to get it appealed. And the cool thing about the appeal is they actually told, and, and I wish I could make this up, but they actually wrote on the side of their application to have the examiner backdate their filing so that the story I'm telling you doesn't look as damning. But they wrote it in pen on the side of the document that they submitted to the patent office. Why would they and do if, that? I mean, you know, if well, it's let's just... See. I mean, if you're an ethical, upstanding, moral citizen, is there any problem with... I don't know, violating federal law by backdating a federal document that has a statutory provision that says when you have to do a thing? Could that be a problem? I, well, I think, yeah. It feels like it could be a problem. And so, so they get a patent on SARS coronavirus. Mm -hmm. Now, here's where all of the legal experts love to lose their, with what I'm about to say. They say, 
You can't patent nature. The Supreme Court held that twice. In 1980, they held it in a very famous case about modifying a bacterium, and they held it again in 2013. And Judge Clarence Thomas in 2013 was very clear on saying the patent office is long held, that's his words, long held, you cannot patent nature, which is what pretty much everybody knows. What the CDC did was they altered the only issued claim of their patent. And the only issued claim says that they patented not the virus, but they patented a sequence identification number, sequence identification number one. That's the only thing that it says in the claim. And if you only read that, you go, oh, so there's what's called a hand of man test in patenting nature, which is if you can show that a person had to do effort on nature to do the thing, then you can get the patent. But you can't get the patent on nature. And here's the tiny little problem. If you actually look at what sequence ID1, which is the thing that's actually listed in the claim, if you go back and look at the defined term, what is sequence ID1? It is the DNA for SARS coronavirus, the natural thing. It's not any hand of man. It's not any human manipulation. They actually misled the entirety of the world by the cunning use of a definition of a term that no one went back and looked at and goes, okay, what's sequence ID1? And it turns out it's the whole DNA sequence. Now here's where the problem comes in in 2019 and early 2020. I say CDC has a patent on SARS. That's a true statement, because they do. Everybody else comes along and says, well, but SARS-CoV-2 is a subclade, which means a subcomponent of the general classification of SARS coronavirus. That's a true statement almost. But to get to the subclassification, you have to pass through the classification. CDC owns SARS. SARS-CoV-2 is a subclass of the thing CDC owns. And at no point has anybody bothered to go back, as we have, and gone to a published sequence of SARS-CoV-2 and found that, in fact, the CDC's patent is the anchor of SARS coronavirus that is, in fact, fully present in the SARS-CoV-2. Now, there are modifications in the SARS-CoV-2, so technically we could say, well, they're distinct, because they are. But if you go back and look at the fragments of the gene sequence that are distinct, it turns out all of those have already been published. So that's in the public domain. So the fact of the matter is, CDC got the patent on, on SARS coronavirus. The patent was awarded in 2007, but its priority, meaning the date they sought the protection, was April of 2003. And the thing we're calling SARS-CoV-2 today is, in fact, the CDC's patent plus published modifications. In other words, the hand of man. Because man has been doing the stuff men and women, but I'm using the legal terms. Um, that, but but that's, the, that's, the, that's the clause, and by that definition, the CDC's patent is in fact still expressed inside of what we're calling SARS-CoV-2. The whole regime after April 23rd of 2003, from April 3rd of 2003 to the birth of SARS-CoV-2 in December of 2019, we tracked over 4,100 patents specifically to the treatment detection and vaccinations for SARS-CoV. 
4,100. How can 4,100. How can I mean? What types of things are they patenting? Vaccines, drugs, treatments, all sorts of other things. So everybody who pretends like, who could have seen it coming? I don't know. 4,100 different people, companies, organizations, institutions, all of whom have a very common link back to the same funding sources. So. Operation Who Warp Speed was not at uh, didn't start at uh, you know zero and then you know no. go forward. This this has been in the works for a long time. No, it's been around since 2010. So there was a whole family of of businesses that got started after the Asian outbreak in 2003. A bunch of them were equity funded. A bunch of those equity funding was collapsed without getting follow-on financing. So there's a kind of a big death knell to a lot of the SARS treatment and vaccine companies in 2008. For some reason, kind of everything fell off the rails in 2008. It may have had something to do with the fact that the World Health Organization said that um, SARS coronavirus had been eradicated. So they did make if that the horse is off the track, betting on the horse feels like a bad idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. I mean. Am I going on a limb here? Does that, does that sound like a conspiracy theorist? I, I would say that if the raison d'etre for the entire research program and all the funding is declared eradicated, it would be very hard to go and ask somebody else for money. Tiny little problem. In 2008, the Defense Department picked up what the public funding left off. On oh, uh, coronavirus? Yeah. The Defense Department took it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so it sounds like a public health crisis that accidentally came out of Wuhan bat cave, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I, I'd say that's pretty solid yeah. ground to stand on. That this was all just just an accident that happened in a wet market in Wuhan in December of 2019. How it feels like it to me. Are there any other smoking guns along the way between 2008? Oh, yeah, nothing like the fact that the company Moderna, mm -hmm. which by the way had never produced prior to November of 2019 had never produced a safe and effective anything that how they get tapped in oh that's an interesting question how did they get tapped with their 141 patents funded by National Institutes of Health and NAID and how was it possible that they were in correspondence with University of North Carolina Chapel Hill in November of 2019 remember this is a month before the bat and the pangolin walked into the wet market bar, right? Remember that? Yeah. So a month before, it makes perfect sense why they were given the RNA sequence for the spike protein for coronavirus a month before there was an outbreak. Who gave it to them? University of North Carolina Chapel Hill under the auspices of NIAID. Wow. So, so Anthony Fauci delivered to a company that had never built anything successfully the formula for Operation Warp Speed vaccines a month before there was even an outbreak. Is there a relationship with Moderna and Fauci? Oh, yes. What was that? They only exist based on Fauci's funding. So Moderna is a very insidious story, and this one's going to creep you out because the story that Moderna doesn't tell you is the story I'm going to tell you. Okay. In 2010, when Moderna got started, Moderna was 10 years already in operation. We just didn't hear of them because they weren't a company at that time. They were a National Science Foundation grant. Mm -hmm. The National Science Foundation grant is entitled Darwinian Chemical Systems. Mm -hmm. 
just sit with that. Let it just settle for a moment because I'm going to give you the, oh, that's interesting. Darwinian Chemical Systems was a grant funded by National Science Foundation to figure out whether you could get RNA to write into the genome of a single-celled organism to modify it to actually see if you could recreate human life in a post-extinction event. people, but the best news is that's where the company was born. This same company that tells you that RNA can never, ever, ever get to your DNA, that company was founded based on 10 years of NSF research showing how RNA writes into the genome of an organism. Now, once again, I'm told, oh, Dave, but, but the lipid nanoparticle that wraps around the RNA that we're injecting into people can't get back into the DNA based on the evidence of nothing but 10 years of showing that you can do it. And the best part about the Darwinian Chemical Systems grant that got started, and I love this, by the way. I, I love letting people know that, you know, people go, well, there can't be anybody that's that evil, right? Like that they would actually come up with a thing that was a computer code that could be injected into a single cell organism to restart the evolutionary process after we've killed off the world. That probably sounds like a happy bedtime story, doesn't it? Mm. That sounds like, I know, I know before I go to bed, I think of what I'm going to do in my post-extinction events. <laughs> um, and when you say yeah. computer code, I just want to make sure if you say when you say is this is this RNA a, yeah. an organic thing or is no. it computer code? No. In fact, the best part about what people say they're injecting into the living human being that I find so fascinating in the current vaccine. Yeah, Good. the current vaccine that's not a vaccine. It's a computer code, mm -hmm. and it's a computer code. And I don't mean that in a metaphoric sense. Uh, what Moderna and what Pfizer are using is in fact a synthetic, read man-made, synthetic approximation of the mRNA required to build a spike protein synthetically. When you and I grew up, and we're probably roughly in the same genre, a vaccine was either the actual live virus or some attenuated part of that, or an inactivated. I mean, you and I are, are young enough or old enough to remember when polio went from crazy shots to oral to, you know, like, those were all things that we did, right? This isn't a SARS coronavirus being injected. This is the code to make the spike protein, but it's not to make a spike protein derived from an actual live, live virus. Mm -hmm. Okay? It's actually a computer simulation of what we think a broad-spectrum spike protein would look like. There is no living system anywhere, and by anywhere, I mean anywhere, in this process. Mm. It is entirely AI. Mm. The whole thing is. And so anybody who thinks that, well, this is just... I, I had a physician recently criticize me by going, well, it's basically the same thing as a vaccine, mm -hmm. using no criteria for what a vaccine is. 
The FDA has got a definition of yeah. vaccines, don't they? Yeah. So how, how and it's they, not this. Yeah. I was going to say, so it wouldn't legally or regular, maybe it's not illegal, but from a regulatory standpoint. Yeah, it is standpoint, a legal thing. It is a legal thing. Okay. Yeah, 21 codified regulations. It's actually a law. So it legally doesn't meet the definition no. of vaccine. And this isn't, um, how can I put it, an abstract debate. This is literally no. just reconciling it's what actually, this thing is. With what the, what the legal definition? Yeah, so let's let's unpack it because what right. I say has the technical scientific reason to be true, but we need to understand it because a lot of physicians who are advocating for the vaccine have actually bought the party line without actually looking at what's happening. So when when I introduce a protein, I'll keep it really simple, like a peanut allergy or shellfish allergy, right? I'm introducing a protein my body has a response to that, mm -hmm. okay? And so anybody who has an allergy, anybody who has any of those kinds of experiences, what's happening is a thing of nature is coming into your body, it's recognized as a foreign agent, mm -hmm. and your body has a response to it. And that response can be inflammation, it can be allergies, it can be all sorts of other things. Typically, some form of a histamine-like response. So puffy eyes, watery nose, watery eyes, you know, mm -hmm hives, whatever, whatever your thing is, right? So, so what's making that happen is a foreign particle of a thing is coming into your body and your body is reacting to it, mm -hmm. okay? And, and, and it's, it's been a part of the human experience for as long as humans have had experience. Right. So that's happened. Now here's the problem. What's being injected is not the thing that's creating the reaction. What's being, re, re, what's being injected is the instructions for your body to make the thing that's foreign. And I don't know about you, but for me, that's a big distinction. It's one thing to have the outside world encountering my body and then my body responds to the outside world. It's another thing to hijack my body to create the pathogen and then has to create Which the response. Which then has to create the response. And here's the internal logic problem. Mm -hmm. That's not a vaccine. Mm -hmm. You are not injecting a pathogen to trigger a response. I'm not advocating for vaccines. Please don't mishear what I'm saying. But I'm saying in good vaccine, old school, pasture level kind of old school vaccine, you're putting the pathogen into the person and the person's body is responding. Mm -hmm. And when we say pathogen, we mean protein, or chemistry or whatever. There's a whole bunch of things that can live out there. And I don't like getting caught up in the metaphysical arguments of is it germ theory, is it terrain theory, is it energetics? Setting all of that aside because we have to stay in their argument to make the argument, right? Their argument says, I'm injecting a code to have your body make the thing, which then we're gonna hope your body actually responds by building immunity to the thing we told your body to make. That is not a vaccine. Mm -hmm. That is a gene therapy. Mm -hmm. Which is a very different thing by definition. Totally different thing, totally different regime, and whether we call it genomics or proteomics, and I don't care which side you come out on, because the RNA that's coming in is a synthetic code to trigger the production of the spike protein. Your body then creates a pathogen and then you hope that your body, having created the pathogen, responds to it as though it was foreign. With the hopes but you of, made it. Yeah, and with the hopes of saying that, because to me, how do you modulate how much gets created? Because Therein lies the holy crap chimeric problem. Mm -hmm. 
What is chimeric? Well, it's kind of the the chimeras are, are the multiple renditions of an expression that, if we go back in literature, usually are multi-headed serpents that are ready to eat sailors off of ships. Like the chimera is not a good thing. It's a thing that's a multi-headed, multi-energetic uh, kind of thing that usually is associated with kind of like Frankensteinian outcomes. So it's when we call it chimeric. Chimeric is not just, oh, it happens to express itself a bunch of different ways. It's usually expressing itself a bunch of different ways for harmful effect. Right. So now, because that's, that's one of the things I've often wondered, saying, you know, what point does it shut off the factory? And then once it does, you know, you know what happens? And, you know, I, I don't know that any of these things could be known. But I'm wondering, how, how does the FDA authorize it as a vaccine under emergency use? Why it's not a vaccine? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. How does organized crime work? <laughs> Listen, under the 21 Code of Federal Regulations, under Section 50 of the 21 Code of Federal Regulations, there's a rule. The rule says that if you're going to have an emergency use authorization, so, you know, pandemic happens, we're going to have an emergency use authorization, you have to impanel what's called an institutional review board. Now, you and I know what that means. Most people don't. An institutional review board is a group of people who have scientific, usually philosophic, usually religious, um, and, and sometimes some cats and dogs, just general observers, but usually you impanel a body, they get together, and their job is to ask the most important basic question. Because the scientist is asking that, can this be done? And the Institutional Review Board is supposed to be asking the ethical question, should it be done? That's written into the law. So what I'm saying is not Dave's theory of how society should function. It's actually written into the 21 Code of Regulations. Now here's where the problem kicks in. That impaneled body has to, under the law, include people with no financial interest in the outcome. Now, the law was written that way, are you ready for this? To get rid of conflicts of interest. Do you realize that at no point, at no point, has the Department of Health and Human Services, which is the agency under which CDC and FDA and NIAID and NIH all live, at no point has the Department of Health and Human Services ever impaneled that institutional review board, despite the fact that it's required at the outset this, by the way, is the, the genie can't be put back in the bottle. You cannot go back and say, well, it was basically justified because our backs were against the wall. There was a pandemic. We didn't follow the law because we were just crazily trying to save the world. No. The reason why the law was written was it said you had to make this decision before you started research. So there was no IRB oversight no. for any of the research, no. even uh, you know, in no. the Operation Warps? Not, not not under the federal statute that tells us how this has to work. What about the and prior research, though? What about the stuff that actually predated the... Oh, I love this one. Yeah. yeah, that's a great question, because at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, mm -hmm. they got a letter from the NIH saying, Dear UNC Chapel Hill, um, the work you're doing is actually part of the moratorium on gain-of-function. You're not supposed to do it. The, the, so, so, so this was gain-of-function gain research. So yeah, it was moratorium. There was a moratorium yeah, on it. Yeah, I mean, you're not supposed to enhance the function of yeah, the virus. Yeah, exactly. So, so, so they get this letter, and it says, you know, 
here's the specific projects that you're doing, which happen to be Ralph Barrick's projects on coronavirus. So in case you were wondering, it was like, I wonder if they can guess what the project is that's the one that they shouldn't be doing. Mm. Yeah, they guessed, because it was in the letter. Right. So that's kind of easy. Mm-hmm. And then the best part about it is in 2016, when Ralph Barrick publishes this SARS coronavirus poise for human emergence thing, in the footnotes of that article, at the bottom of the article, if God forbid, once again, if you read, it's there, they not only had an IRB at UNC Chapel Hill to review the research, but they had an IRB to review the legality of the IRB. <laughs> <laughs> Who's watching the watchers? Yeah. <laughs> wow. And they put that in writing, wow. right? We know we're breaking the law, but there's a lot of money in breaking the law. Mm-hmm. So we're going to put together another group to evaluate whether the breaking of the law is actually ethical wow. because we're making a lot of money on this project. And by the way, you know, I laugh at this in a way, but it's this is published. This was in 2016. This was long before there could have been a conspiracy. They were conspiring because they knew they were doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. So the researcher knew he was doing something wrong, so he tries to get the fig leaf of the, oh yeah, but the IRB approved it. The IRB goes, we know what we're doing is wrong, so we're going to get an IRB on our IRB. Yeah. We don't and, and we're still supposed to believe that this whole story started in a bat cave in China. You know, this this is like a bank was robbed in downtown L.A. There's robbers standing on the steps of the bank with bags of money and guns. Let's go ask the robbers if they think a bank robbery might have happened in Geneva. Well, like, if that happened, we would all sit there going... We're not that foolish. You do not ask the bank robber to investigate the bank robbery while they're holding the bags of money and the guns. That's what we're doing now. So let's connect these dots. <laughs> this is, you know, it's almost like uh, you can't we you can't make this stuff up, right? No, I, mean, I wish I could. Yeah, it, like, yeah. I, I would be like a Dan Brown novel, yeah, like yeah, the imagination. Like, yeah. Jack Ryan would be child's play, and I have my own prime channel. <laughs> so let's connect the dots. So yeah. we're going back to early 2000s, maybe late 19, you know, 1990s. Late 1990s. And we're finding that there's intellectual property or patent activity going on uh, around uh, coronavirus and yeah. using it as a vector in vaccines. The very first one, 1990, Pfizer. Oh, wow. Pfizer was doing it in 1990? Oh, you heard me say that correctly. <laughs> That's right. That was my out loud voice. I just said that. <laughs> this is funny, but you're funny. Okay. So, <laughs> so but who could have picked Pfizer? Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, like, happens to be? It, <laughs> it could have it just been a fluke. What a coincidence. You know, and, and you know, maybe maybe the bat and the pangolin were hanging out, walking kind of crazy. Walking <laughs> so Pfizer's filing patents as early as 1990 yep. in this arena for a coronavirus vaccine. For a coronavirus vaccine, then we then we got you know late 1990s, 
Now, and you said, I think, earlier that in the patent at the CDC, and obviously it's got to be an individual on behalf of the CDC, because the CDC... No, in their case, like 40 or 50. It is literally... Paul Rhoda is the named inventor, mm -hmm. followed by, I don't know, 30, 40, 50. It is... It's like a phone book of Atlanta. Well, everybody was in on it. So, so you know, just just, you know, just clarifying for people yeah. who might not understand, you know, intellectual property law, but you know, a, a company or an entity can't file can't file patents. It's individual inventors, yeah. but then they are licensed to. Yeah, they assign it. They the assign ownership it. is assigned to yeah, the to the CDC. Patients. Yeah. And you said though, and and, um, and it might be just my uh, ignorance around uh, genetics, but uh, you said that there was a part that the, the part of the DNA was what was. Um, you know, was patentable. Yeah, the whole but DNA viruses system. don't have DNA, do they? So, well, there you go. Yeah. So how's that? How's that work? Okay. Yeah, that's a, that was a confusing point for me. That happens to be specifically what they say the source of the entire sequence was: coronavirus DNA. But coronavirus doesn't have DNA. Well, you know what? All I'm doing is reporting the facts. So this doesn't. So. Okay, now uh, you know it's it's confusing, but nonetheless, it, it was meant to be confusing. Remember, if you're creating a theater, absurdities like this are where people intentionally put the absurdity. Because what are you doing? You're going to have a ten-hour conversation with a bunch of legal scholars on whether or not this was or wasn't legal, or blah 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 blah. blah. And you know what we're not going to do? We're not going to call into question the fact that a federal government agency violated federal law and we're not going to talk about that because we're going to be debating the merits of the color of the toilet paper in the bathroom yeah. right there are so many distractions woven into this thing where people can get dogmatic about masks and distance and what's a gene and what's a virus and you know you know you can break your pick on a thousand one of these and miss the whole point which is a group of criminals who want to see a humanity that is turned into something replaceable with a series of automatons that never ask or answer or inquire into things. A small group of individuals have decided that's the future of humanity. And the way you do it is by taking every attribute of what you and I would normally do, which is, hey, that's interesting. I want to dig into that. Well, I need to exterminate that impulse. Thank you very much. There's one thing that you uh, briefly alluded to, but I want to, I want to reconcile. Yep. And it's this idea that you say there is no contagion, but now we're talking about this series of, of the, you know, the IP and, and you know, yep. the virus and yep. what it's targeted to do and then the remedies for it, et cetera. And so are you looking at that as just smoke and mirrors? It's not, you know, there's no practical application of that, or how, how do you reconcile these things? Yeah, so let's go back to Peter Daszak's quote. Right, we need to get the public to accept a pan-influenza, pan-coronavirus vaccine. Right? Got it. Now think about this. We're not going to accept a vaccine without a pathogen being named. If I told you tomorrow that, and by the way, I'm not making this up, Moderna has a, a vaccine in development for opioid addiction, funded by NIAID, Anthony Fauci's here. If I were to tell you that I need to give you a vaccine to prevent your opioid addiction, would you take it? Of course not. 
how can you say of course not? Well, I mean, me personally, uh, yeah. I, yeah, I just don't uh, align with that particular model of... Uh, no, but, but, but there's a deeper problem. Yeah. You don't have an opioid addiction. Oh, well, that too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm projecting, but like... I thought you meant if I had an opioid prediction, no, addiction, but, I'd take okay. But the reason why you wouldn't do it is because the condition giving rise to the thing that I'm allegedly intervening doesn't exist. There never was a contagion. The reason why we never measured for a virus was because it never was there. There was not a series of things being passed around populations. Understood. There were conditions in which a bunch of people were observed to be getting sick, and I'm not diminishing that. But here's the actual model of why we need contagion. We need contagion to get an acquiescence to an intervention. We built the contagion model to sell drugs. Contagion didn't exist. It's an agency, it's a narrative, it's an ontology of fear, which then says, now you accept the thing I'm telling you fixes this horrific monster that I told you I created or I told you is real. And it creates confirmation bias. On our Absolutely. Part. Yeah, so, so we're looking for it. But so, what's the alternative? Um, uh, you know, I want, I want to say hypothesis, but the alternative explanation, if you will, of um, family of five. You know, all get, all have the symptoms and patterns of COVID nineteen. Right. So, so all of them also have mm -hmm. a thousand other things that they've done together. Mm -hmm. They went to the same restaurant. They watch the same, you know, they have the same EMF exposure in their house. They have the same water system. They have the same all kinds of other things. There are tons of times where you have co-emergent symptomology. Mm -hmm. Go to any sorority house, go to any women's dormitory, and a bunch of women begin their menstrual cycles in synchronicity. Is that some sort of deviant master plan of the universe? Or is it, oh, when people are in the same environment, some frequency emerges that actually syncs up different parts of people's systems. There are a few, probably thousand cases of, oh my gosh, I went to church and 10 of us at the church got sick. Therefore, it must have been the church that was the problem. I mean, th this bolt story that came out of Washington State which led to the anti-singing ordinances. <laughs> there was somebody in a choir that sang and they were sick and then they, you know, 15 other people got sick. Okay. All of it objectively, mathematically, numerically, and phenotypically, maybe the case. Did they meet at Denny's for coffee before they went to church? We didn't ask that question. Did they actually leave the church and all go to meet up at a bar? We didn't ask that question. Did they have the same snacks or whatever. There's a thousand questions that we didn't ask, but we wanted one single narrative to emerge. Somebody sang and the other people got sick. Now, here's a tiny problem with the story. I was a choir director. Guess who you'd expect to be the pathogen source in a choir? A bass or a baritone? Dave, why would you say that? Well, Dave, I would say that because it turns out 
that they're standing in the back rows, and so their vocal projection and expiratory gases would be flying over the altos and the sopranos. So, mathematically, the certainty would be, if the pathogen came from the choir, it came from a bass or a baritone. Now, that's not Dave's mysterious mathematical wizardry. That's, I was a choir director. I know how choirs stand. And the problem was it was a soprano and alto that got baritones and basses infected. That story is full of Interesting. Because they didn't sing in a circle, they sang in a choir. The problem here is we want the we want so bad to get the confirmation bias. People were in a place. This a cruise ship. Okay, cool. And they were exposed to the same salad tongs. They were exposed to the toilet seat handles. They were exposed to the bar. They were exposed to a ton of things. And what we want desperately is to say, oh my god. These people were in the same place at one point in time, and this happened. And we failed to actually examine the facts and say, time out. A ton of people were there that nothing happened to. Mm -hmm. And, and here's the worst part, and the people who allegedly had an event horizon themselves also didn't create the next event horizon, which is the reason why what we call r not the infectious rate of, of alleged pathogens and pandemics, didn't actually ever meet the calculated rate. We wanted desperately to tell a transmission story, but it didn't show up. And the reason is because we knew that the thing we were measuring was infectious and replication defective. People are not reading the actual science. We built the fragment off of a coronavirus that was in fact infectious, but not replication defective. And now we're trying to say there's a replication problem. It doesn't work because it can't work, which is the reason why to do the clinical trials, they killed off the idea of transmission right out of the gate. Because if you actually had to measure that, the whole story would blow up. So you look at it and you see the architecture of it, but remember, and here's where it gets really important, what we are injecting is a pathogen. That is real. And the pathogen we're injecting is the mRNA strand to turn you into a S1 spike protein builder and you're not building a SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. You are building a synthetic, chimeric, synthesized version of a computer code that we think is going to actually trigger the production of a spike protein. But we are not using nature to do that. The only way I can get a population to agree to the transaction is to create the illusion of the contagion in the first place. It never existed. The contagion never existed. And by the way, I bring up the syphilis case for really good reason. It didn't exist then either. It turns out that during the mid-30s and 40s, it was very, very, very difficult to deal with, allegedly, an outbreak of STDs. You know why? Because everybody was actually only having sex monogamously in their privacy of their own homes. The only reason why it worked is everybody knew that they weren't actually only having sex in their own homes. <laughs> Right? But yeah. you, pick an, right. you pick the illusion. Right. How many people could have ended that whole contagion story by going, you know what? I was sleeping with the neighbor. Right. But we didn't tell that story. So it was the mysterious who saw it coming. Every time we're doing this, every time we play the cycle, the model is so tired and broken that I can't believe anybody can still fall for it. But the cool thing is, 
because it's the same model, I actually can see the evidence and I can set my machine intelligence systems to detect when we see the pattern reemerge. I guess what ties in here, you know, looking at the macro data, is that we're supposed to have had this, you know, this pandemic that went on for as long as it did, but the, uh, you know, the all-cause mortality death rates really haven't changed. No. So, so is that? imply that what you're saying, you know, what you're saying is true is that yeah. you know, there's not suddenly this contagion that's infecting more and more people and more and more people are dying because that's, you know, that fact isn't existing. No, and we have the tiny little problem that I said on a show not long ago, which is I always like to follow the money. And in this case, I like to follow the money called life insurance payments. Because you know who doesn't lie about life insurance payments? Actuaries. Yeah. Life insurance companies. Yeah, right, right. You know what hasn't changed? The number Premium. of claims that are paid. No, the number of claims that are paid. Which means people haven't died more. Well, unless coronavirus cunningly has the ability to pick who to infect based on whether they're insured or not. Now, if you believe that, you're seriously tripping off the wrong side of the, the globe here. Because the fact is that if we were going to see the all-cause mortality, creepy, scary statistics, we would also see the life insurance companies losing their mind about all the death benefits they paid, except for the fact that they actually paid less during the pandemic. So this gets more fascinating because I got life insurance uh, right before the pandemic, and I, was, I got more during and the you know, the, the rates didn't change. So there's no higher risk from an actuarial standpoint. Because they weren't paying for the deaths that weren't happening. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, these things, the minute I say them, people go, oh, that's interesting. We should have actually looked at that because the people who are not going to lie are the people who actually have to pay for the lie. That's right. And they're not paying for the lie. They're not even covering it up. They're not saying our cost of business went out. No, in fact, they're reporting better profitability. So we see this whole thing brewing, and again, what an unlikely trail that you know you have uniquely fo uh, followed, which is the IP trail. Yeah. And then you reconcile what the activities are around getting protections legally for certain things. Yeah simultaneously with proclamations of, of documented public statements, all of which predate this so-called yeah, so pandemic, yeah. and, and it leads up to it, and then suddenly we think we find ourselves in this new scenario, but the scenario has been dreamt of for decades prior. Yeah. And it, it, it's almost it, it, with chilling accuracy as far as exactly. I mean, it's, yeah. especially when you There's talk no about surprises. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, especially you're, you're talking about you know a, a virus that's patented that attacks the, the lung epithelium. Yeah, you know. Uh, I mean, thank it, God they have good internet and bat caves, obviously, because the bats figured this out. So they're like, hey, <laughs> can you make sure that we get that epithelial? Wow, like that's pretty cool. Wow, and then. Of course, the mandates uh, for vaccines, and, and now you know, of course, the rhetoric around that, and you know that everybody has to get it, and then they're getting it to children. People have no risk, and so on. You start to see the whole thing unfold, and it, you know. So in the beginning, as we started this conversation, you talked about you know, well, it's a, it's a fork in the road to tell you know, two potential futures for humanity, yeah. 
and it's you know in the abstract it's like okay we you, know, you talk about you know the first one which is you know a digitized humanity that's you know submissive and, and controlled yeah. by you know by you know maybe a few but then now we see how you get there because of all of what it, what's unfolding along the way you know it's a, it's an interesting human question mm -hmm. i think because i love to step back and say what are we missing in the conversation and it is an interesting human question i don't know if you remember but elon musk and stephen hawking used to chat about kind of the future of humanity and when the machines would rule the world and and i think we all had the and, and most people don't know this but the term robot comes from a very dark czech poet and an author who invented the concept of a robot which is a, a really weird thing but they were really concerned about you know the future of ai when the robots would rule the world or machines would take over humanity or whatever else and i think all of us had this kind of sci-fi view of which was at some point there was like the Alexa voice that was you know inviting you to drink the Kool-Aid and kill yourself like that that's I think where a lot of people go with that but the mistake was that if you actually look at that whole conversation what was AI so many of us were thinking that it was humans were going to go into a machine right we're gonna have the your brain on the stick and and you were kind of gonna live in this virtual reality hologram and you know and the some of the researchers were kind of propping that story up. And, and both Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk were very popular in talking about, oh, be careful of the machines ruling the world. I think we've, we've missed the warning by the caricature of what that means. I think we missed the definition of what a human was. Because I think that we all thought it was, we were going to go into an AI not we were going to turn our bodies into the AI. And that's a big distinction. And I don't think we've had that right conversation, which is, if I have authentically considered... The <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to stop right here. Um, this is a damned nation. Even with all the proof that this man has given, I think my favorite point that he made is that the life insurance companies' rates have stayed the same. Because, I mean, if there were all these death tolls, then the life insurance would have to pay out these death tolls. And they claim these companies haven't had any problems. They're not... Like he said, they're not. These companies aren't gonna lie because they gotta. They would have to pay out more. They'd be ruined if all these death tolls were were in were had had existed. And the fact that these mind games can be played on people. If if I yawn, you're gonna yawn. It's the same principle. A group of women. Someone has a period, then another woman has a period. They, yo, I mean, it goes on and on. This is, wow, this is unbelievable. Unbelievable. Let's, let's continue. I mean, I, I feel like the points have already been made. Like I said, this is, this, is, this is great. I couldn't have said this better myself. It's what my sovereignty is, what my humanity is, what, whatever your language is. If I haven't considered the, the who am I really, then what is the line between me and a machine? 
If I get up every day, punch the clock, you know, get my coffee, go to work, work for a job I hate, also that I have the privilege, maybe, if I survive to 65, of living my disease-riddled, you know, asthma-riddled, diabetes-riddled, miserable existence in an RV in a trailer park in in Provo, if that's if that's my definition of what my amazing human existence is, haven't I already become a machine? And I think we need to look at that from a foundational standpoint because the reason why we can have a public who at 47 or 48 percent, if we believe their numbers right now, is accepting a vaccination, which isn't a vaccination, which is in fact a computer code to turn your body into a machine to create a pathogen so that you then have the mechanism of immune response respond to the pathogen you created. If that is your definition of humanity, then we left the question of humanity a long time ago. We already entered the machine age. And we're not engaging in the question that says, hey, hold on a second, don't we have a moment now to re-examine the human question? Not to figure out how to avoid the machine question. Because maybe the machine question started on its journey in the Industrial Revolution, where you were part of a machine by what lever you pulled. And were you on the manufacturing line or whatever you were doing? Like, if we lost our picture of humanity a long time ago, which I think we did, then the machine question is a different one. And where I think this invitation sits right now is we have roughly half the population who knows somewhere in some soul level, intuition level, we have a knowingness that says, we're not going that way. And yes, we've been told it's the, you know, the anti-vax or it's the hesitancy or the whatever else. I like to say it's the choice to be human. And the cool thing is we have evidence that says that over half the population still has the echo, still has the memory somewhere in the cave of consciousness that goes, humanity is not about building pathogens and putting them in our bodies. Humanity is about figuring out how to increase our vitality, how to increase our connection, how to recognize the limitless nature of the field effect called the human experience. And I love the fact that for the first time, maybe in the modern story of humanity, we've been presented with this beautiful fork in the road to say, which choice do you wanna make? Do you wanna go down a pathway, which is the fatalistic machine digital pathway, or do you want to go down the pathway of saying humanity has yet to build its greatest cathedral? Mm. Well, I wonder, and it's, 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 um, you're adding aesthetic beauty to the circumstance, which uh, I think it calls for, which is really important uh, if we're going to retain any sense of humanity, yeah. right? Um, you know, where's the beauty in it? You know, it's always a good question, and and I think you know that's a part of it is you know yeah. saying that we're. We, we now are forced to consider things that maybe we weren't considering. Exactly. And, and that, that is the good part. The, the other part of it that is, um, you know, it's, it's, I would speculate about that becomes disconcerting is that maybe there's more to the agenda, the, the dark agenda, meaning, okay, so you're injecting this stuff in and, you know, you're, you're putting AI into your body, you're putting, yep. you, know, uh, you know, things that turn you into a machine. 
is it possible that that maybe there's a further agenda saying that this opens up uh, the ability to continue to program you and do more no to question. you? Oh, it's no question. Oh, God, no. So it's not. So it's not limited to. So the idea is. I mean, this is this could be really sinister, and, and but I can't help but have my mind start to go there now. Is to say that you create this fictitious pandemic, yeah, and. Um, you create the fear mongering, you create censorship so that people like you can't be shown on social media talking yeah. about any of this kind of stuff, or other people like uh, Robert Malone, who you know was uh, an inventor of the you know the mRNA technology, yeah. who speaks out with concerns, shut him up. So all dissent goes away. Any other potential less uh, speculative and less harmful uh, you know cures for this problem can't talk about them. Yeah drive this agenda, but it's not about, the whole thing is created not just because we want to make money on a vaccine. No. We want to create automatons. We want, we want to be able to, once this stuff is injected, maybe there's you know a down the road uh, control that can be imposed on people. So you think that that's a foregone conclusion? Oh, I don't think it is, I know it is. How? Well, because I've actually been in the meetings where those very things have been considered and there's nothing like instilling the existential fear of death and you need to have a, a, an anonymous enemy to do that by the way yeah right you have to the reason why we don't actually measure for the complete SARS-CoV-2 is if we did we wouldn't have enough numbers mm -hmm. the reason why we do RT-PCRs on fragments is because we can find fragments we can't find the whole thing we've not necessarily evidence that we isolated the whole thing because even when we say we've isolated the whole thing, we've only isolated fragments that we build into the thing we're calling it. So we actually haven't done what is required to say there is a thing. The more you can anonymize the agency of fear, the more effective the fear. Right. I don't know where it's coming from. I don't know where it's coming from. It can be attacked anymore. Like, when I get up to walk through a restaurant, I have to have my mask on. Well, I'm sorry I have to stop here because my time is limited to 60 minutes. So what I'm going to say is you need to check this out. It's called V-Real with a V. V-Real. And um, it's called VR23. VR2023. And um, I, hope you, I hope I have, uh, what, what is it? like-minded people, smart people, people that have some sort of intelligence. And I'm not asking you to be a scientist or anything like that, but just really have an open mind to what's going on. You know, I always talk about The Matrix because when I watch The Matrix, the movie... I look at it differently now because I, I may have repeated myself constantly on this where I said, you know, I'm watching Neo and everybody kill these humans when they're in the virtual reality, how the Mr. Smiths turn into humans. And then I go, you know what? Those people aren't actually innocent people. They are killing because when you look in the real world that we live in, there's so many people that believe what the what the media says, the propaganda, that even family members, I know for a fact I have family members 
that believe in this. And they, they, those are the same people that will go against you. They'll turn on you in a heartbeat. I believe that. Unless they, unless they unplug themselves from this uh, matrix, this, this evil anarchy, evil scientists, evil people that are out there, these little insignificant people who are controlling billions of people. I can only say it's evil because I don't understand their thinking. I, I understand their thinking. I understand why they think they're doing this. There's some, some you know, we talk about Darwin, Darwinism, just that name alone. These, these people who feel that if you are inferior, you don't have the right to live. Like, wow, that's... That's crazy. Like, I don't know. I don't even have, I'm, I'm speechless at this point because I've read these books and I already know the CIA made the word conspiracy to make you look crazy to the people that know the truth. So I'm going to leave it at that. And uh, y'all bless. Oh, God bless. And wake up, people, before it's too late. A damned nation out.